Podcast Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show, a podcast all about front end web design and development. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Goyer. Hey, that's right. And we're going to make true on that a show all about web design and development today for sure. Not that we don't always talk about that, but we're gonna we're gonna get into some some browser it's technology. The spreadsheets show. We're talking about <laughs> spreadsheets. Oh, I kind of like spreadsheets, but yeah. Um, oh, anyway, pivot. Uh, <laughs> with us is a, 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 a longtime good fella and 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 acquaintance, Scott Kellum. How are you, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, we kept threatening to have you on the show for years and finally made good on it, I think, here. So so um, um, maybe th- do you have a, a like a bio blurb of yourself <laughs> that's, that you want to do? Are you in New York still? Uh, I'm in actually uh, Washington, D.C. now. Um, so, yeah, kind of moving around a little bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm working on uh, uh, Mariana, at Mariana Tech right now, which is a boutique fitness software company. So we do kind of like all the scheduling stuff for them. So I'm a product designer there, and then by night I work on TypeJira, which is uh, sort of a company I'm founding and trying to get off the ground around uh, sort of fluid web design, which I'm really excited about. Awesome. Well, that's probably <laughs> we should start there. TypeJira, T-Y-P-E-T-U-R-A dot com. Uh, you visit that, folks, and you're kind of thrown into a. Um, Kind of a, you know, you see some, you see some set type, and then you have the the option to mess around and play around with it. So, what's the deal there? What's it do? So it it remaps keyframes to browser width, uh, and it you can plug in sort of anything into it. So it could remap it to scroll position or mouse position or whatever. But by default, it remaps keyframes to browser width. So instead of using breakpoints. It just kind of interpolates all of this stuff, uh, all of your CSS properties between two points. Uh, so it's really, I was focused on it as a solution for fluid typesetting, um, which I know Trent Walton has wrote a post on in 2000, uh, 2012, I think it was. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know, Dave, you worked on uh, fit text, but this kind of focuses on really setting text at at a large scale uh, in a fluid way, but it's not just limited to typography. It can do all kinds of stuff. The keyframes analogy was was apt here. I admit it took me a second to get it, but it's like you slowly, like you open up typechura.com and whatever it's at, maybe that's a keyframe already, right? So you on the left hand side, maybe you put in font size 18 pixels or something. You literally just type it in, right? And then drag it to some other point because the browser width thing, it's probably smart that that's like the default thing because a lot of us think in that way, right? Like what's, what, how, what size are my fonts going to be at this size versus this size? Uh, and then you make another keyframe perhaps and you type, you know, drag it wider and type in a different font size. And now you have two keyframes, right? So then dragging between those two keyframes, you can kind of watch it magically make choices for you between those two keyframes. So at a small, it's 18 pixels at some small size and 22 pixels at some larger size. You'll see it kind of minimize out at 18 and maximize out at 22. And it, so that's that's kind of the magic of what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because there's not a... Con- with... With layout, you have percentages, and you could say, do like fifty percent 
this box can this box fits into 60, 50% of the width of its parent element. Uh, but with typography, as you're scaling back and forth, you have viewport units, but that's pretty much the extent of that uh, in terms of the control you have. So TypeTure really enables you to you know, get in there and fine-tune exactly what you need to do in a visual way without sort of doing lots of complex math. Yeah, pretty sweet. I, I, how many, how many, all of us have dealt with that kind of, you know, maybe you, on your first pass of designing something, you just picked what was given to you in your Figma document or something, and it looked great at that size, and it looked very not great at some other size, and you were forced to think, oh gosh, what should I do? Should I make a single breakpoint in here and just resize it, or should I? Gosh, what should I do? In the past, I know I've tried to set everything in M's or REMs or and whatnot, and then kind of like picked breakpoints at the HTML level to like notch down perhaps a set fix pixel size. So they all everything kind of just scales down together in a way. But then you find yourself doing little tiny tweaks here and there to fix thing it doesn't scale as nicely and then i think some of us have seen very exotic solutions with like you said viewport units kind of maybe sprinkled with some calc or something for some magic but then sometimes in the end what what you are the result is a little inscrutable you know you're like i don't, I don't necessarily know how to adjust this <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and i've been given mocks as well to implement and a lot of times it's like all right this is the tablet version this is the desktop version with no indication of how things change in between those points or what the breakpoint is, so you know, on a project recently, I was just like, "I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw these two values into Typechura, and it's going to handle it for me." And uh, it's kind of like the Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Like, this is too hot, this is too cold, and it figures out what's just right in between all of that. I like it too. It, it's, it also has like this. Uh, if I'm gonna, I'll, I'll give you a little tagline here for free this is consult free consulting here it's it's like code pen for typesetting in a way because you're just you can like like that and that's such a core to your business your brand your website is how your type sits on the page and and, and i only know this because i work with people who are like actually actually care about fonts but you know it's it's such a core piece of the brand and the experience of a website of or anything that um like it's cool to like play with it here and then you get a system like a, a system that scales up and down i think that's that's nice because i always mess it up like chris was saying like every time i i i think on my site i hate my h3s just and i have no idea how to fix it but i'm just like i hate them they are the worst. yeah so. <laughs> stuff like that or the, i tried the calc thing on my h1 and it is dumb like and it goes in my thirty-four inch wide ultra wide monitor, and it's like four thousand pixels tall. And I'm just like, yeah, well, I'm not gonna fix that. That's an edge case or something. So, yeah, right. It, may, it leaves you wanting for max font size. Oh, right? I want that. That'd be so nice. Hopefully, Mac, hopefully it doesn't put you out of business here, but I'm, I'm sure it won't. Um, so, but it, the output of it is kind of fascinating too. Do you want to talk about that? Like, I, I don't know that I entirely 
grok it yet, but it's kind of like you pick some keyframes and then you don't use the word keyframes like metaphorically, or maybe you kind of do, but the actual output is quite literally the keyframe syntax in CSS. Yeah, and I've gone through a few different approaches to as to how to tackle this. Uh, the first approach was with custom properties. So I was passing through uh, essentially like a flat array as a string into a custom property and then parsing that with JavaScript. So there were pixel values in your CSS for each keyframes and then it was transforming that on the fly, which was kind of cool. It it was nice to author, but it created a lot of confusion because it was parsing the custom properties with JavaScript. It kind of broke the cascade a little bit in some places. Uh, so getting it to work with native keyframes made it not quite as nice to author, but it, well, it's still super nice to author in my opinion. <laughs> but uh, it enabled uh, it to work with the regular CSS cascade. And so how it does that is there is one custom property written to the body of the page. And that is written in there with JavaScript. And that just defines, all right, what is the width of the viewport here? Okay. Uh, and from that, it feeds into uh, an animation property that's applied to sort of globally as the default uh, animation for all elements. And that animation is paused at uh, the offset of the browser width. And as you feed in keyframes to that, it sort of maps to the browser width now because you're pausing it at a function of the browser width. Wow, so it really is using native browser tech to, to you know, what keyframes natively do under the hood. You, you hook into that and make it give you the value that you want out of it? Yeah, exactly. It's the only thing that JavaScript is doing is really injecting a value that happens to be the view, be the viewport. If you want to cascade things that are like element queries, you can just write that custom property on the element, and it will cascade into this function and work as. So I got a query. I got a keyframe at 500 pixel browser width, let's say, and a keyframe at 700 pixels browser width, let's say. But I'm currently at 600 or something. It knows that I'm halfway in between. I'm at keyframe 50 percent. And so you, you can kind of run that animation, pause it at 50%. You probably don't even literally need to run it, right? You can kind of programmatically run it or something, I assume. It just And then pause it at, at that, that moment. And it coughs up valuables, and it might be a font size, right? Well, that's fascinating because the what's the difference between, you know, font size 13 pixels and 82 pixels? Like, it prevents you from having to do that math, right? Not that that's particularly hard math to do, but... It, you might as well just make the browser do it, and then you steal it. But you're saying it doesn't. It's not just math, it's, or it's not just font size. It's line height or color. Color would be a weird thing to have to hand interpolate, wouldn't it? Yeah, I have a code pen actually that blends colors, so it's like SAS mix mode or SAS color mixing, but with native uh, CSS using this technique. Hmm. Wow! So I'm fascinated because now my little browser window corner thing, the the three dashes I use to squeeze uh, my window, that is, that's like a scrubber, like a timeline scrubber, right? Like the browser viewport width becomes a timeline scrubber for an animation 
that just so happens to animate my type or some colors of something or wow, that's next level here. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And now like pixels, not a traditionally responsive unit be, can become responsive as you're sort of scrubbing back and forth. Those can interpolate. So it, it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities for, for changing colors, size, layout, not just typography. It's, yeah, it's, it seems like you'd be so tempted right away to just be like, oh, I can do all this in JavaScript. I can make all these calculations. You just you know, give me some configuration of what you want me to do, and I'll do all the calculation myself. It's, it's a pretty, but, you know, and that's fine, too. It's not like that's a disaster or anything, but it's, it's kind of clever to use JavaScript, but ultimately kind of just pass that data to the browser and make, kind of make it make all the calculations for you before before setting them it is though dependent on javascript yeah it is yeah it, i mean you could write these custom properties in breakpoints uh, and sort of just map out a bunch of different breakpoints with the width value associated with that and have that cascade into the function so it could be native css it's just having javascript write the width value is letting JavaScript do what it's best at, and that way CSS can do what it's best at. And just having the two things work together made sense. Yeah, certainly. I, I just would think if you're trying to like remove any doubt from people's mind, <clears throat> you know, because some people are like, oh, weird, JavaScript for this? Does that mean I get like flash of unstyled weirdness or, preview, or not quite styled all the way flash or something? Do you, have you dealt with that in a way? Yes. In Safari, there are a few bugs with this, uh, so it doesn't calculate rems appropriately on initial load. So, like if you were to go CSS, the CSS only direction, and you were using rems, it would uh, sort of miscalculate what the scale what the scale of that is. Uh, and so, yeah, that that was an issue when I was initially sort of prototyping this up. Uh, so. Loading it in after the fact sort of lets the CSS load and then sort of snaps typeture into place and makes it work. Uh, there is sometimes a little flash of, of unstyled or uh, sort of not correctly sized text, but uh, in what I've played around with, it's not been too bad. Well, and like, but you're feeding the CSS machine, right? Is like just a, what's the, hey, what's the window width? Right. That's kind of <laughs> like, I guess you're the, the speed of that. It'll be like dependent on like when type Tura can kind of measure the window. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to zing you. Um, <laughs> are you ready? Ooh. I was like, what happens when I browser zoom? I'm going to bust him. Uh, but it works. So good job. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was like, I got him. I got him. I got him. But, Nope. Well, it must fire a it must fire a resize, huh? It does. It looks yeah. like that's what the lib does. Yeah. Um, but uh, it does look. Uh, sorry, again, not back to zingers. It's like what other limitations are there? I, I'm seeing Edge isn't quite doing it. Um, uh, but yeah. also, Edge goes to Chrome in like a few months or something. I have no idea. But so maybe. Why does everybody? I feel like that's fascinating. Just that that little moment, right? Everybody's like, soon, 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 soon. Remember when the announcement was, it was like, oh, maybe it's just weeks away. And now tick-tock, tick-tock, nothing happens. Nobody's saying anything. What's the deal? When does it ship? 
I don't know. I know people have it and have built, but I, I haven't seen it. So my guess is there's a lot of work to do, but who knows? Is it years? Is it years away? That would be I don't, interesting. I don't know. I'll call. I'd bet me, by the end of the year. Call but... the edge hotline. Well, it just changes how we talk about the web a little bit because we're already like, oh, forget it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't work in Edge generally because we, it feels so right around the corner. But like maybe that's, you know. Uh, True. And what if what if they're like, lie. we're bailing on this this plan, you know, then like everybody's like, oh, better update that tutorial. <laughs> oh, my God. If their goal was to not have people hate them, that would be the worst choice ever. <laughs> Whenever we talk about browser support, I always think of the the poor people stuck at work on these machines that can't update from Internet Explorer, and uh, they have no choice. You know, it's it's easy for us to say like, you know, just upgrade. But a lot of people don't have a choice in this. So you know, even if if Edge switches, I think there's still going to be a lot of people on Internet Explorer. Um, so that's you know that's the thing. The can't is a big deal when there's no upgrade path at all. And that, that's the case certainly on, on work machines sometimes, but also like, you know, if even on old iOS devices, if you, if you, you know, even if you're an iPhone user, at least you can remember what it's like to have an old iPhone or something. You keep it around for three, four years, like hopefully you do. There's sometimes on old, old hardware can only run certain OSs and only certain OSs have no upgrade path whatsoever to new browser thing. It, I was, it is fascinating. It's, it's tempting to be like, oh, you have old Safari? Well, even Apple, uh, even Safari is evergreen. You know, be like, not on iOS, it's not. And yeah, I have there a, are limitations. I've had mini stuck on iOS 9, and it's just like, yeah, we don't, we can't do anything more than that. So it's, it kind of doesn't run anymore, but, but it's stuck there. So. This episode of Shop Talk Show was brought to you in part by Flywheel. That's getflywheel.com, which is WordPress hosting. Perhaps you've heard of Local by Flywheel, which has kind of taken the local development environment for WordPress community by storm. You know, I feel like I used MAMP for like 10 years and it like still exists. And if you use it, that's fine. I'm not like crapping on map or anything but it like local by flywheel to me blows any other choice out of the water for one i kind of like little uis i like a ui for my git i like a ui for all kinds of stuff not that i'm like afraid of command line stuff sometimes i just like it though local by flywheel is like an app it sits in your dock on your mac or it works for windows too which is relevant to us because we are are redesigning the Shop Talk Show website, and I recently moved um, hosts for it too. So that's the connection between these things. Of course, I run WordPress locally on my machine with Local by Flywheel. So I spin up shoptalkshow.local um, on my local machine to work on the WordPress site. And Dave can work on it too because Local by Flywheel just spins right up on his Windows environment too. So now we're a team and we can work together. But, uh, uh, you know, moving the site was so great because right in local, like there's just like a button, like connect to Flywheel, boop, connected, send it up to Flywheel, boop. You know, it's like two buttons and it and it shoots up our whole site to Flywheel hosting. You get like a little subdomain. You can make sure it's all right. You map the DNS over to the Flywheel hosting and boom, it's moved. I feel like I was like, Oh, I gotta. I want to get this site on over on Flywheel. You know, this is you know all the 
section off the morning to get this done. Hopefully I can get pretty far. Maybe I'll get it done. And then it's like 30 minutes later, it's done. You know, I love that when you find like this hosting product is so good, so easy to use, helps you with local development and live development. Plus I'm in there like, you want to turn the CD on? Click CDN on? Click here. Uh, you want SSL on it? Click here. Derp, derp, derp. It's this beautiful UI internally. You know, I, I kind of started to like demand that from my host too. I'm like, this is a paid software product. Should be a, have a nice, you know, clear, intuitive UI. And of course it does. So anyway, love Flywheel, love local by Flywheel, love it all. It's great for us. We use it here on Shop Talk Show to power our WordPress site. So is your goal with TypeChair to be a little, is it to, it's, it's open source. I see there's an MIT license just sitting on it, but is it to be somewhat business-like in some degree, some kind of paid something, something, or, or is it just open source thing? Just use it. Yeah, there are a few revenue stream streams that I'm thinking about. Uh, you know, uh, consulting would be one, and then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, like a paid subscription to it, so you could save your work and share it with others. Um, you know, maybe sell kits. Uh, but you know, I, I'd like to make money off some side project in my life at some point. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> this could be it. It's, it, it looks like it, you didn't launch with too much then, so I guess that's a a, a good thing. Like, but you know, so if you're on the site now and you're making a bunch of keyframes and getting things just perfectly, I guess it behooves you to make sure you copy that keyframe stuff out of there, right? Otherwise, you might not, not have a way back to the work you did. Yeah, it saves in local storage. So as long as you're on that same computer, you're okay. And as long as you don't clear your cache. Uh, but yeah, it, it's probably a good idea to save that out. <clears throat> or pay for the paid version coming up soon, which you can save it right to your account. Yeah. <laughs> nine ninety nine a month. Yeah, I've been thinking about the revenue models of stuff online because you know you end every show pretty much with you know how can we give you money and it's like we put a lot of stuff out there for free and stuff on the front end is like inherently free you know mm-hmm. uh, yeah so I've been thinking a lot about that I just uh, I not no pat on my back but I I finally like owned up to the words I've said here on shop talk. And I went into open collective and I started backing some projects and I feel good. I feel, <laughs> I feel good about that decision. So, um, I recommend who, if I don't know if, if you aren't supporting open source or anything like that right now, it's, it's super, it's a feel good moment to like, like support projects you use and make money off of and like, you know, and, you know, I wish we were better at it as a community it, to, to, to some degree. Like, it's nice that so much stuff is free because, I, you know, maybe that pushes innovation faster or who, who knows what the exact implications of that are. But I've certainly benefited from it. But at the same time, it's like if it's if it's entirely on Dave Rupert's shoulder to make sure that he goes out and supports everybody involved, I feel like that points to like a like uh, maybe we're just not as entrepreneurial as we could and should be. And the fact that we're not means that there's more dead projects around too, and that has negative implications. And mm. I don't know. Fair. I don't do yeah. nothing for free. <laughs> not you know that I'm some perfect example, but <laughs> what I'd pay for for fonts is like uh, sample 
uh, type pairings, you know, I know you can find them kind of like there's that like hello Google fonts, which is pretty awesome. I go to a lot like, Oh, it's got good like type pairings, but like a type pairing plus a type setting. And I had access to some kind of uh, type tool that would give me like out of the box recommendations of really pro setup type setups. Oh boy. Scott. Yeah. Wink. Most people. Yeah, don't if it was good that. enough where <laughs> I would put no typography into my own project. I would just do it all here and grab it all out and drop it into my project somehow. I mean, easier said than done perhaps, but, uh, but that would be nice that, you know, to not have to manage that particular part of it. Cause I, it's that weird thing. It's like, I don't want to do all the work, but I want a good one. And I, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I know what I like. So that would be. Yeah. And sometimes I think like, I'm excited about this stuff. Why aren't other people excited about this stuff? And then I think about, you know, all this tooling that I use that I'm just like, you know, I don't want to think about this stuff. You know, so <laughs> I'm super happy that somebody else has. And you've been messing with this stuff for a while. This is not your first uh, um, toe dip into the world of typography and modular typography or responsive typography or or whatever. It's been years and years, right? I think of your modular scale project, which was kind of a related here, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kind of like the predecessor of sorts? Or... Yeah, in a sense, I wish we could sort of build in a modular scale calculator into this, but I think until Houdini really takes off and we can register custom properties reliably, uh, that's going to be a little bit difficult to do. Um, well, what was the deal there? Why do you need that? Because the calculation wasn't, is the problem with keyframes can't, I don't know, have a easing to them? It wasn't, is, is easing kind of part of the ideal of modular scale? Or? Yeah, yeah. So uh, what the thing that you kind of want to transition when you're working with a modular scale is, you know, as you're changing that ratio, you're changing the contrast of the typography. So a larger ratio makes sort of bigger headlines and, you know, to whatever the text size is. And a smaller ratio, sort of closer to one, uh, makes more uniform headlines. And if you're on a big screen, you kind of want these big, chunky headlines with small text that kind of creates a really dynamic... You just have more visual opportunity for, for hierarchy in a way. But on a tiny screen, you just you don't have as much. Yeah, so like, yeah, on a small screen, it's like you're not going to... You're going to fit like one character per line. And, <laughs> you know, that's not going to work. Uh, so it's a little like a shift in perspective. That's the number that you would want to slide. And that number doesn't map to any current CSS property. So you would have to make a custom property. And in order to transition that property... Uh, you would need to register that property in a, a Houdini-like API. Are you saying like a CPL, like characters per line property of some kind? Like, could we invent that? I wasn't thinking that, but that would be interesting. Or you could also do max width, whatever ch. Yeah, yeah. Which is pretty common. Okay, interesting. All right, <laughs> but you've also worked with like molten leading. I think that was like a. Tim Brown, uh, uh, like what it would a joint is that when you guys collab a collab a Tim Brown collab? Uh, modular scale was our collab. I haven't worked directly on molten letting, but it's it's definitely something I'm aware of. Yeah, I thought you were all involved in that. So, but isn't because Typeura works on keyframes? 
is that it doesn't really expose your at least at the moment it doesn't look like it exposes what easing it uses is it just linear easing or couldn't if you applied an easing thing to these keyframes doesn't that in a way change the modular scale you could apply any easing you would want uh, and at it, it wouldn't change the modular scale it would i mean well if you're between two keyframes two settings yeah, but when you're at one setting, you still, yeah, right. So it's like you need easing, easing or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you could still, there, I left that as a custom variable, so you can type whatever easing you want to use within TypeJira. So you can change it from linear to something else. Which, I don't know, the impact of that is probably a little minimal, but maybe, you know, who knows, right? It's kind of cool if you set like, a watch size screen and then a massive screen, and then you can kind of set the curve to exactly what you want and not sort of worry about any keyframes in between. So there are some cool things you could do with it. I have heard of really weird scenarios in which a designer is like, actually, I want it somewhat small on a really on like a phone screen or whatever, like, you know, a couple inches wide, and then only a little bit bigger than that on desktop for some reason is something eyesight who knows and then for whatever reason the biggest size is on a like a medium sized tablet <laughs> i've seen I, like not that's weird but it's kind of true and then maybe you could even put like one of those really weird easing curves into it that like goes off the rails weird in the middle yeah like outside of the boundary oh that would be crazy yeah you could totally what do you do call that. those like a uh, an a cubic bezier that yeah, is like a mountain goes like beyond a one a mountain, right? <laughs> I was doing that with my hands and realizing I, not only can you not see me, or can the audience not see me, but we don't even have video on ourselves. <laughs> Nobody can see my mountain. Zero one zero. Does it even exist? <laughs> okay, well, best of luck on all that. That's that's fascinating, and and because it's I don't know because it's pretty web native. Uh, you know, the JavaScript part of it is is pretty minimal. It's even funny to call it type pure JS when the JS part of it is like <laughs> ten lines or something. Yeah, it's about six hundred bytes. Six hundred bytes, not even a K. Can you believe <laughs> that? Call it type pure dot BSS. dot tiny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we need dot tiny, not just dot min. We need like dot tiny for like actually small things. <laughs> so one repo in your uh, uh, GitHub that I want to talk about that I don't think is getting enough positive press in the trades is Momentum. Can you talk about Momentum? Because it is such a cool project. Thanks. Uh, it's a lot like TypeJira, only it has uh, it doesn't have the CSS piece of it. And it's just about providing those values. So just like TypeShare provides the width value of the viewport, it provides uh, you know all these other things that you have to be like, all right, what is the uh, what is the scroll position? You know, how far away is this from the top? You know, offset top. All these things that you might query uh, JavaScript for to be like, all right, you know, what is this? And then do some styling off of this allows you to bring those values into CSS to run through calc and then do styling off of. And it's stuff like viewport Y and viewport X and all, all those, all the hits. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It I can even see that being in in native CSS someday. Like it's funny that with just these few, and again, this thing is a hundred lines of code. Um, provides you in CSS just all kinds of stuff about the viewport. Like it's almost weird that CSS doesn't know these things already. Yeah, I thought that too. It's it's something I want to style off of. I mean, we've got viewport units. Why can't there be like orientation units or you know something else? Yeah, certainly these scroll units are probably the most common use case for for someone like wiring up some JavaScript in which to send to. CSS. It's nice to have a function too because the you've probably dealt with the the performance of it all which is always a concern with stuff like this. Like if I write it myself it's so tempting to just be like, you know, whatever. Add event listener, on scroll, on resize, set property done, you know, which is like it's not debounced, it's not doesn't do anything intelligent whatsoever about making sure that it does those things responsibly. Responsibly, and if you have like ten of those, they like all register ten times, you know. And so now you have ten window event listeners or whatever by accident, and then rather than just like one, just tell me, hey, window, tell me what your scroller is. <laughs> CSS is already so performant at rendering things through calc, like. Why not just use that? I've done a, a few experiments. I know like uh, Dan Wilson has kind of done a lot of like transforms based on kind of CSS custom properties, like the variables um, and, and stuff like this, um, like viewport scrolls and stuff like that. And so I just, I'm so convinced this is like the way to kind of <laughs> style and do animations. I, I just, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm looking, well, I actually almost use this in like a production situation. Unfortunately, we have to like kind of go pretty far back on our, our browser support, but um, you know, like, like somebody dropped in like, you know, thousand lines of jQuery to kind of do these measurements, you know? And I was like, Ooh, I got a secret library <laughs> that does all this <laughs> and it's so fast and it never, yeah. Oh. Well, when you can use custom properties in your full, uh, browser support list. I'm, I'm excited to see what you come up with. Yeah, well, and uh, I mean, we just did the like, okay, let's get the VARS CSS going, you know, <laughs> SCSS. And and I was like, man, I might just spit all these out in a root, like in, in a root statement as well. Like that comes with VARS. If you import VARS, we import the root variables so that the, the front end has it, you know, and, and right. people can mess with it, so... Does that what is that what about you guys why why did it take hold in in CSS custom property land where everybody applies them to the selector colon root like that's so bizarre to me like nobody uses that selector ever for anything else and like it doesn't matter if you use it people do use the html selector which is the same thing and i i know there's i know what the differences are they're like well if you were to move this to svg then the root is not the html element it's actually the svg element i'm like who puts style blocks in svg i'm sure some people do but when you do you know what you're doing you know i have no i, I didn't know that i didn't know that was <laughs> but i do know uh, probably adi asmani put it in a blog post and now that's what i do so that's that's what I do know. 
Yeah, if you want global, that's where to go. Yeah, if you want it to global, but but it, it's literally identical to putting it in at, on the HTML selector, which is the, I think like it just pro, like I'd like to trace it back because it proliferated in such a strange way that it's just like I think some people just assume oh if you're going to use custom properties you have to use this weird selector at the top of your file that's where you put them. Yeah, my biggest concern with that is there is a lot of value to put it sort of in a local scope. So are people afraid to do that? And you know, there's there can be a lot of value in sort of local overrides to those those custom properties. Yeah, I would hope that that doesn't get smoked because that you're right that the the fact that they cascade. Although I feel like even after all these years of writing CSS, I still I still am always like have a twitch of worry that I use that word incorrectly, but. <laughs> Whatever. That's how I think of it. They cascade down to more specific selectors, and they're happily overridden at that level if you want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like classical inheritance inside some sort of CSS class um, of sorts. It's nice. Well, that's cool. Nice. Thanks. What else you got going on, Scott? Any, any other projects? Is there? Do you want to hint at some future things for Typeura or or Typeura or talk about you know other use cases you've seen in the wild? I mean, that's that's kind of like where my head's at these days. Uh, I mean, other than that, I'm making code pens. You know, playing with recursion and you know all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, so, you know, doing that as usual. One of my favorite things to play with. Uh, just got to give a shout out to this because it's a really old and underused thing. The cicada principle. Do you all re- do you all remember that article? Uh, uh, yes, I think so. That's the one where like if you use it, it looks more random. Your website makes noises every two years. <laughs> <laughs> it had something to do with like overlapping and making it look really, I don't know, exotic looking. Yeah, it's uh, it's using. Prime numbers, so patterns, multiple patterns built on prime numbers to create the illusion of something random. So it like repeats uh, to the whatever the multiplier is between them all. So yeah. I've been playing around with that a lot in animations, and it's been a blast because you know it's just it looks like this organic thing that's moving randomly around. Uh, I don't know. That's just one of my favorite things to play with yeah, on CodePen. Seven thirteen seventeen or something. That's like cicada is like a little bug, right? And it comes out at years that it seems random to, or you know, like uh, whatever species they eat. Don't they eat some other kind of bug? And so that other kind of bug is tripped out by their schedule. They can't figure it out. Well, it's just like once in a while they just get eaten and they're like god dang it but if it was like every other year they would catch on they'd be like oh i get it they come out every other year i think they're predators cicadas. yeah their predators are like i'm gonna have a feast right now and like they don't know when the feast is going to come so they're just overwhelmed and then the cicadas just going to reproduce some other year because they come out in a very unpredictable way and it turns out it is predictable but it's not it's not something that any other they, it's hard to catch on to when right evolutionarily right. and even if it was if it was predictable it's like all right we can we can get this pattern but it the pattern goes on for such a long period of time because these are prime numbers and they compound so like it gets 
every time there's a new cycle added to it, it it just kind of staggers it out even longer, uh, which is perfect for use in CSS animations because if you want to sort of create something that looks random with a, only a few moving parts, you can kind of dial into that. And so, how something. would you use it? Would you move something? 70 pixels, then 130 pixels, then 170 pixels, or would you move it like seven or put keyframes at seven percent, 13 percent, 17 percent? What is it, or just all over the place all the time? I usually do it with the animation duration, so mm. you know, just kind of adjust the animation duration, uh, and then stag- stack multiple of those animations on top of each other so that you know they kind of diverge and they almost never converge because they're sort of on the staggered schedule. I mean they converge eventually, but it's it's very That's infrequent. Great. Yeah, who yeah. <laughs> Shout out to 2011 the cicada principles back. Yeah, it's it's my favorite <laughs> thing and I really want to bring it back. So it's it's the coolest. Uh, <laughs> I got I got one. I got one. You yeah. ready? So uh-huh. whenever you talk about parallax uh, somebody will say, "Oh, you do it in CSS," and they they link to not your your creation, your original creation of the CSS like CSS parallax, but some weird weird one that doesn't work. So, what <laughs> what is your like? Do you recommend using the CSS parallax method? Because maybe we can step back and describe how you created that. But like like. D- do you recommend that, or what? What? What's your feelings on on the CSS parallax? We should define it first, right? Like, what is it? Uh, pure CSS parallax. The I assume you're talking about that code pen that I authored. Yeah, probably like 15 years ago. <laughs> no. Yeah, so it is using. It's like actual how parallax works. So as you're driving on a in a car. And you see, like trees in the distance are moving a lot slower, slower than trees in front of you. I think a lot of times parallax is conflated with just uh, scroll scroll jacking. Uh, but w- to like mimic the actual effect of parallax, we already have 3D functionality in CSS. So as long as you can lock the perspective to the viewport, you get a parallax effect. But in order to lock the perspective to the viewport, you have to essentially lock the body to be uh, 100 view height tall. Uh, mm-hmm. In the version that I made, viewport units were not as reliable as they are today, so I used percentages to do that. Uh, and it works. It works well across lots of browsers, but because uh, I guess because it is doing something so weird, uh, I I don't necessarily recommend it. A lot of browsers sort of pre-render a whole page and scroll that as one unit, uh, as opposed to uh, this technique where it sort of has to paint as you're scrolling it, because you know it it doesn't have this sort of long image that it's just moving up and down. So it it works it works really well. Wasn't well, the idea like to set the stage? There's like let's say you render a page and it's got a hero image across the top, and there's like a couch and a plant and a vase or something, and like oh, you scroll down and you're like surprise, 
they're all independent objects. The couch moves away really slowly, but the plant flies away really quickly and the vase flies away at some medium speed or something. That could be considered parallax, even though it doesn't mimic reality, because in reality, farther things away move slower and things that are really close to your eye move faster. It's still kind of using the spirit of parallax and that it's just like fake. It's like if there was a giant tree or the couch was actually, you know, 50 times bigger than it was and shot or whatever. But your your technique is, didn't it like it shrink them with a transform and then rescale them bigger some way? So it's like the scroll effect, you know, it moves faster or slower because it has been transformed already. But, and there was some kind of magic in there, wasn't it? That like... Yeah, so... It uh, it does. It's very honest to the original representation of parallax, like the the natural representation of parallax. So if if you transform something in three D, like a plane, you could you'll see the top of the plane and then the bottom of the plane as it moves up the screen. So it, like how we normally see parallax is just flat rectangles, uh, and sort of vary the speed of those, but it is actually uh, CSS 3D, and things are moving past a fixed perspective. Uh, so, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I find it. I think it's like clever. Like you're using that perspective. So, uh, perspective 100 is close to me. Perspective 1000 is farther away. Perspective 3000 is farther away. So that 3000 will just move. Just based on like the, you've almost set up a 3D scene in CSS. So that. Yeah. And it's just kind of fun, right? It's not to be used all the time, but it's, it's kind of a clever thing. And what's cool is it's not technically scroll jacking because it's not doing anything that native scrolling isn't doing already. There should be no performance hit whatsoever from this. None. Right. And that's what's kind of appealing about it. Yeah. I like that. But scroll jacking is when like you scroll down and the couch like comes flying at you because it hit a certain waypoint and JavaScript was watching for that and something happened. Even that type of stuff can be, you know, done performantly ish, but is definitely not as clean as just this pure CSS approach of like pushing it away and pulling it forward with transforms and perspective and all stuff. Stuff. If you're gonna do it, try to do it that way first. That's much nicer to some degree. Or worse, the worst kind of scrolling is when you when you're trying to scroll down and it's like, whoa, slow down there, buddy. I have a panel I need to snap into place first before you're allowed to scroll past that one. And that's what that's what the scroll jacking comes in. It is appropriately termed because it's like has stolen away from you your you know your natural scroll downness. Yeah, I found it really interesting that uh, sort of slow sites and bad performance is so heavily associated with parallax. It, I don't think it has to be, but uh, you know it is. <laughs> well, I, th- I think like your like uh, momentum would be a perfect example. Like if you just want to like move something a little slower, use calc and position absolute or whatever, and uh, or fixed and scroll y. You know, I think that so much easier. Ah. That would be my recommendation today, yeah. You can still screw it up, though. Like, just because you have scroll Y in your CSS, if you use it then to set the top position on something, 
Well, we know top isn't the most performant thing to set, especially rapidly, right? That's why JavaScript animations don't use it. So you still kind of got to be a little careful. I think there's like two main limitations. Like the browser doesn't report subpixel like scroll. Like you can't scroll 321.025 pixels. So like your measurements are always rounded. Um, And so, yeah, maybe you'll get like some snapping, but then... The other thing I think is like the, uh, um, yeah, like what you're saying, it's, uh, you know, you can't measure, you know, window dot scroll Y at 60 FPS or something. I think you can, but like the idea there is like, it's a expensive measurement or something. So, so doing it on, on whatever, uh, request animation frame is probably going to be kind of slow. So, or idle key idle frame or something. So idle yeah. callback. That's the one request idle callback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, that's, it's, it's well named, isn't it? That particular API. Cause you're like, Oh, I get it. Like the browser will only call this when it's like the thread isn't blocked and it's ready to do something more computationally intense. But, I've never actually used it. I'm still afraid of stuff like that. You know, like if I'm about to do something gnarly, I'm just scared to do a period regardless of. Yeah. I get a request idle callback. Anyway, what other CSS stuff are you excited about, Scott? Do you have anything in mind that's like, ooh, that's fun to play with that doesn't have to do with bugs? Or <laughs> uh, I think recursion is my other favorite thing to play with. Uh, just with M's and you know how things affect the things that are nested inside of them. Uh, I think when I talk with people about authoring CSS, I, I don't, you know, I do design at my day job, not author CSS. And it's because, you know, I like to play with stuff and it's like, I like CSS as sort of poetry as opposed to writing instruction manuals for production stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, recursion, just like how properties cascade down and sort of change as they do that, I think is super fascinating. Uh, and you can create some really not performant things because it has to do, do the calculation on the parent, then the child, and then that child, then that child. Um, it's but, like yeah, the classic my... example that like, oh, I li font size 1.1m. That's just killed people over the years. You know, they're like, oh, it looks fine. And then somebody writes an article that's got three nested lists in it and the <laughs> font size gets huge in them. And somebody's like, what is happening here? Yeah. I found this really interesting bug in uh, Safari as well with animations. And they are self... Uh, so if you apply an animation with an M unit on top of an M unit... Uh, an element with an M unit, it self recursion. I don't know the word. It uh, it creates a recursion loop within itself, and it's super interesting. Well, how does it play out? And it's only in Safari. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Like it's a bug. It's like an accident. Oh, it's problem. a bug, but it's it would be really fun to play with if it wasn't so different from everything else. So what else does that? Because there's, you, you'd think unitless things would, but do, do they in the same way? Like, you know, you find 
if you set line height 1.1 or whatever, does that get, does it compound on itself as you nest elements within itself or would it have to be M to do it? It would, it would, I think it's more dependent on the property than the value. So font size can have sort of a recursion loop because it references sort of its parent, but line height only references itself. Oh, it's uh, not an inherited property. Uh, it can, and it's it's inherited, but it uh, it only references the font size of itself. So it's referencing a property other than line height. So one point one is referencing font size. Right. Okay. It's referencing it, and then it stops there, kind of, because it only has to look at one level. Whereas font size has to look at. There's nothing it's referencing on itself. It's referencing a parent, which references a parent, which references a parent. Right? Yeah, box model stuff you can create recursion loops with. So as you're sort of nesting an element inside of an element inside of an element, you can, you know, for example, width of fifty percent. As you're sort of going down, it will get smaller and smaller. Uh, but you can also not set a width and just sort of have them. You know, layer out like rings of a tree or something like that. And you know, I, I made a code pen recently where it's sort of these concentric circles moving around each other. Uh, and there's no uh, width or height set on anything. It's just sort of based around the the borders and how much space those take up to sort of form these concentric circles. Really. Does it like about the fifty percent example? I, mean, I think people can wrap their head around that, right? You have like twenty nested divs, and they're all set to, to with fifty percent. It just cuts in half, cuts in half, cuts in half, cuts in half, and it forms a kind of natural easing too, doesn't it? Does that map to any easing that we think of normally, or is it just, it's its own weird? Yeah, it's a logarithmic scale. You can map these out on modularscale.com. Very <laughs> good, full circle. Uh, and if, yeah, if you set, uh, you know, 0.5, or if you set a, a scale of, uh, using the ratio of two, it will be twice whatever the child is. Uh, so as you go up, you know, you could see, kind of see things build up and up and up on sort of a more logarithmic scale as opposed to linear scale. Got it. Fascinating. Logarithmic's a little quick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which is why like type sizes and M's, I think, work. They're fun to play with together. I I know that they can be kind of difficult to manage in production code, but if you like the golden ratio is really interesting. I don't think it's particularly useful in many practical purposes, but if you sort of have nested things with a modular scale of the golden ratio. Uh, and sort of are one step below the scale in the context of it, everything within it will be exactly the size of one step below uh, on a modular scale. So that kind of recursion is very predictable with inside a golden ratio, which is partly why it's so interesting. I think I've heard you say in the past that you'd think a guy like you, Scott, with, with plays with modular scale and, and helping us with you know, keyframe out our typography and, but anything, all this type of thing that you'd be really into the idea of 
vertical rhythm, which is a, I feel like a concept of typography that, I don't know, comes along with this bucket of thought, doesn't it? Like vertical rhythm being, you know, let's say you bought some transparent grid paper from the craft store and laid it over your computer screen that the typography on that screen it's it you know could or perhaps should like match perfectly onto those grid lines that regardless of anything else on the page that you know uh, the baseline of an h3 lines up with you know the baseline of the h1 up above you know and that if it does that there's some you know spine tinglingly perfect thing that happens Dieter, Dieter Rams uh, appears in your room uh, <laughs> <laughs> has you on the back and says well well done yep that's the way to solve uh, it it's tricky <laughs> yeah you have to do it three times though on yeah, three yeah, different yeah. websites and then what is vertical rhythm and is, is it true that you kind of don't care about it or <laughs> uh, yes uh, that's true and uh, it is the idea of sort of aligning everything to a more base unit. So like, let's say uh, you have a four pixel baseline grid and then all of your font sizes and line heights need to be a multiple of that. Uh, I don't particularly agree with that. Uh, and there there are a few cases where I think aligning to a baseline grid is important. Uh, and that is if you have sort of columns of text next to each other, uh, it can be useful. But on the web in particular, it's it's extremely difficult to maintain that vertical rhythm. Uh, and then there's text on the web is also rendered in half-letting. So as you apply line height to something, anything over... Uh, the difference from one, so like let's say you have 1.2 uh, line height, the there's 0.1 letting applied to the top and point letting applied to the bottom of each line. So really? Yeah. I never knew that. <laughs> yeah. So it's everything has like this weird half letting, but that pushes the baselines off. So if you're really if what you're trying to do is align the baseline of all of the typography. The larger text with, you know, maybe a little bit more letting relative to the size. One point four, sure. Yeah, uh, it's it's still going to be kind of misaligned with whatever smaller text comes next to it, and you know it will. That's what's always killed me about this. I found that so hard because then at some point you kind of give up, right? And you're like, well, I can't put 1.4 on these headers because it's screwing it up too weird and it's forcing me to use like weird negative margins or something, which I don't want to do. So if I just set it back down super low, that kind of fixes and I can just scoosh things around with margins, positive margins. And then you're like, this is a mess. Like, I feel like I'm fighting a ghost here for, and for what? You know, like the end result doesn't seem like it's any better. And then I talk myself out of it because I'm like, well, on the web, I'm looking at probably a sixth of the overall thing at all. And it seems like, oh, sure, if I open up a newspaper because I'm sitting on a park bench, I can see 
everything that this entire the entirety of the content of everything so like i can see how vertical rhythm matters in that scenario but on a website you can only see a little piece of it at a time anyway what does it matter if the the top of this website has the perfect grid alignment with after i've scrolled down four thousand pixels you know who cares yeah i mean in some cases it is nice to see it but yeah and the, the vast majority of times yeah it's going to drive you crazy and it's it's not particularly worth it. I think there was a spec that Adobe wrote uh, a draft spec to include vertical rhythm uh, on the web in CSS but you know it, it's I don't think it gained too much traction. It would be interesting to see. I, I wouldn't be opposed if it were a lot easier to do but because it just creates such a, a fragile mess it's uh it's not something that I particularly care for. Yeah, if you could just get it for free or something, that seems cool. But yeah, I, I can see how you mean columns of text next to each other. Do CSS columns do anything fancy to to handle it? Let's say you had an H3 in your first column, but not in your second column. Does that make that second column's baselines not align, or do browsers do something smart about that? From from what I know, no, they don't. Yeah, I, I don't recall the they top, do anything like top line. That's a little funky, right? Because you'd, you'd you'd see you'd think in that second column over if it was all misaligned baselines, you know, all that small copy that's set in the columns. If it didn't share a baseline, that would be very awkward. Yeah, yeah. What are you gonna do? Just <laughs> put a big old grid gap on it. What what is it called? Recall column gap. I guess it better be. <laughs> I think it's called. I wonder if gap. that new gap property because we have grid gap. They renamed it gap. It works with Flexbox now, sort of. I wonder if that will map to columns too. Hmm. Hmm. Question mark. Question mark. Don't know. Well, cool. Hey, I think we are are hitting our time limit for shows here. Um, oh my gosh, we are. That people, went fast. Yep. 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 Sorry. Uh, got a. I. I'm the uh, timekeeper here. Uh, official timekeeper. So Scott, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you coming on. Uh, for people who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm at Scott Kellum on Twitter, and uh, I'm at Kellum.me on Mastodon. And uh, yeah, go to Typechura, use it if you like it. Uh, we will have ways for you to give me money, hopefully at some point soon. Excellent. Wonderful. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this and your podcast choice. Be sure to start her favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And if you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. In just a tiny bit of housekeeping, we are adding uh, transcripts to every episode. We, we are uh, working with our transcript friend, Tina, uh, to do that. Um, but it's, it's, we're probably, what, like a week or two behind, Chris? Is that kind of weird? Yeah, I'm sure it'll. It's not Tina's fault. I'm sure it's just us. Our we're still we're, it's new. We're working out the workflow and stuff, and it takes a little time. We don't. What we don't do is not publish the show because we don't have a transcript. We just publish it and then add them later. So if you're really into transcripts, just you know, slow down your life a little bit. <laughs> we'll you know? try, we'll try like we'll try to get it like at a as soon as possible um, um, into the the post page, and uh, maybe we'll we'll do a better job on Twitter like tweeting when we have that. So anyway, but just wanted to say that it's there, it's coming, it's something we're committing to. Yay, transcripts! So um, anyway, that's all. And uh, Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? 
Hey, shoptalkshow.com.